Hello and welcome to the Finding Proof podcast. Today's episode sees me here with Australia's Psychologist of the Year, recently appointed by the Allied Health Awards, the first time those awards have been won. So Dr. Amy Talbot, my very good friend, Australian Psychologist of the Year. Congratulations on your award, Amy. Thank you, Tess. Thanks for joining me here today. We're going to be talking a little bit about Amy's award and what that means for her as a business owner and as a psychologist. We're also going to talk about Amy's journey to psychology, which was not a straightforward, obvious choice for her, which I think I was just saying to Amy a second ago that it's a great time of year to be talking about that because, of course, so many students are worried Mm. about not only exams, but worried about their future and feeling the pressure to know what they're going to do when they grow up. Yes. So tell us about your journey to psychology, Amy. Yeah. So I guess, you know, as I was telling you, I, um, I had... I was a good student, so at school um, I did I did pretty well, and I always knew that I would probably go to university um, because I, I valued learning, and I also kind of knew I wasn't really ready to just step out into the workforce. I wanted to be in that space of continuing to explore and and learn and grow, um, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I had lots of interests, so um, lots of different things I was passionate about. Um, and nothing that really stood out as, like, that's the thing that I really want to do. Um, I'd had a number of different ideas as a young person about what sorts of things I wanted to do, but nothing What sort of ideas concrete. did you have? What sort of things? Um, well, at one point I wanted to be a journalist, yeah. um, but I went and did work placement as a journalist, and I really hated it. So um, it felt, it just felt really boring. It was really funny that the thing that I actually most enjoyed about that work placement was when I went on um, on call with the photographer rather than with the actual journalist. Um, so I wrote articles and things, but it just, no, it didn't, I didn't feel like I was achieving anything. Um, I didn't feel connected to that role um, in, in any way, really, um, or passionate about that, that space and the day-to-day working of what they did I don't know, it just didn't really do it for me. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, due respect to our writer and journalist friends, of course. Yes. It wasn't for Amy. That's right. <laughs> you know, and I think that's a great thing about work is that there's lots of different types of vocations mm. um, and it's about finding the one that is the right fit for you where you do feel that sense mm. of passion and achievement um, on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so that one wasn't for me. Um, but my, my year advisor, um, who I had a good relationship with, um, I think he could see that I didn't have a good sense of direction and where I wanted to go. Um, and one day he kind of sat me down and said, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I'm going to go to uni. (laughs) And I don't think, I don't think he felt that was a very good answer actually. Um, he's like, but what are you going to do at uni? And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, so, you know, what kind of marks are you hoping for in the HSC? I said, oh, good ones that'll get me into uni. <laughs> and, and he's like, but, you know, I think he really felt like I needed to have a better sense of direction mm. in where I wanted to go in order to focus my, my learning and attention during my studies. And so many, so many students at that stage feel that pressure yeah. from the adults around them to know what they want to do and to really yeah. focus on that with a, like a laser sharp yes. focus and it's just not reasonable for all children to no and I mean most most people that I know yeah. that that hasn't been their experience yeah. you know they, they don't grow up kind of knowing exactly what they're going to do and, and pursuing that although there, there are people for whom that that happens yeah. um, but it wasn't me I wasn't like that yeah. um and so somebody that I knew my family friend was a psychologist um 
And I had some um, difficult experiences in year 12 and I chatted to her at one point and she said, oh, you know, you would make a really good psychologist. Um, I've never really thought about that. Um, you know, my passion was really in history mm. at school, um, history and law. Um, I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer um, because I felt like the sort of work you would do day to day would be very boring, that real paperwork oriented. You can see that this is a theme in my life, right? Um, Not enough spice. (laughs) Yes. um, You know, I really, but I I was very passionate about history. Um, And, but I I didn't, I I kind of knew I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, Even though I valued education and I valued that learning process, I didn't think that I wanted to work in a school. Um, And... So I was unsure where history might lead me. Um, and so I signed up to do a psychology and history degree. Nice. Um, so I could kind of test the waters and see what I liked and what I didn't like. And what was great about that degree is it was really varied. Mm-hmm. So I could actually choose a really wide range of subjects and see what I liked and what I didn't like um, and decide what to do from there. Um, what I loved about history is that social side of it, like learning about the story of communities and the story of civilizations and socially how they adapted over time and what the stories looked like of the, the leaders and people in those organizations, in those communities. Um, and so I did my first year psychology subjects and I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I'm like, right, well, I'll, I'll become a psychologist. Right. Um, so you fell into it, really. Yeah, yeah I did. Into it. Now, when you were at school and you were getting all that pressure, there was a bit of a reason why you were being pushed so hard to mm. focus your vision for university, wasn't there? Because you were actually in an extension program at school. Yes. What was that like? Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was good on, on some level um, in that... You know, it allowed me to explore individual learning projects um, in a way that otherwise I wouldn't have had the opportunity to. So I really got to guide my own learning in many ways and select things that I was passionate about and investigate those things. So there was a lot of alignment, I think, with my values around that, around learning. Um, and But it was also really difficult because... Um, there was actually in this particular extension program that we were talking about um, was related to um, law, like legal studies and law. And there was only one other person doing the extension program. So, and as I said, it was very independent. So we didn't actually have it, like we didn't have a teacher per se. There was a teacher associated with our program, um, but we didn't go to class. We went and worked in this kind of learning space um, off to the side, just the two of us. Um, And this person was very different from me. Um, which was a great thing. Um, and so we, we didn't really cross paths very much outside of this learning space. And, um, you know, I started to really get to know this person and, you know, we started to become friends and I thought that that was really good as well. But there was this really great opportunity to meet someone that I didn't really know that well and learn about them and, and build a friendship. Um, but I think it was also very isolating um, in terms of, you know, as I said, there was just the two of us. We didn't have a lot of support. Um, our teacher was great, but it, it was that real independent space. Did that have an impact on your, your friendships? Because I can imagine being, you know, clearly put somewhere special. And, yeah, you know, it kind of sets you up a little bit, I would imagine. Yeah, it did. So um, I had a lot of experiences at school where people, where I felt very isolated and disconnected um, as like a nerd or someone who was like 
identified as intelligent and, and pursuing kind of learning in that way. Um, and it, I don't think that it was a strong value of many of my peers, the learning elements. And, you know, as, as I told you, there was also this experience where the teacher from the extension program had pulled me aside and said, oh, I just wanted to let you know that the other student finds you really intimidating. Um, and that was really difficult too, because I, I don't, like, I don't see myself in that way. I think we were talking about this um, in, we just did a, a um, exercise recently where we got feedback from some colleagues um, that you, you and I were in together. Yeah. And we were talking about that idea of understanding other people's perceptions of you and how they change over time as they get to know you as well. And it was good in that I think this other student kind of persisted beyond that. Um, and we did become good friends, but there was this sense of, you know, you're really intelligent and that's intimidating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, it's such a sensitive age in your teen years. Mm. It really does set you up. And, and I've talked before about that sense of isolation that comes with being a business owner. And yeah. that sense, I've used the term immortal. You know, you're, it's like you're, the, you're always the last man standing. Mm. You're always the last one to turn off the lights. And it doesn't matter how many people come and go in your team, you're always the one left yeah. like an immortal. And you've talked about that too sometimes, yeah. that, that sense of isolation. And Amy's a young business owner. She's slightly younger than I. <laughs> <laughs> but we are kindred spirits anyway. and um and being young and being the boss mm. that must feel a little bit like it felt yeah it, it does it does because in a lot of ways you know many of the people who work um in my business are you know peers in terms of age yeah. um or older than me yeah. um and so you know i think it's a very strange thing as as a young person to, to have people, you know, sometimes even like closer to my parents' age yeah, right. reporting to me or um, it, it's a, a weird balance of power shift. Um, and I find it a little bit intimidating at times yeah. as well. Um, they've actually been really fantastic, the yeah. people um, who, who are in that kind of age group. Like I don't think that they've treated me um, in a way that lacks respect or anything like that, more just my own internal process of thinking. Yeah, we all have that, don't we? Yeah. We all have that internal little nagging thing that, that can yeah. pull, us, pull us back or pull us down, if you like, and, yes. and stop us from achieving where we're trying to head, which, of course, is, you know, one of the themes of finding proof yeah. and finding the evidence in yourself. And I know that, you know, you, Amy, you've achieved, well, obviously this award, and, and yeah. but your business is relatively young and, and the yes. culture that you've set obviously supports not only you as a leader but supports the team in the work yeah. that you do because the work that Amy's practice focuses on is is highly complex work. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, about the work that yeah, we do. Yeah, the work that yeah. you do. So um, do you want the story behind that as well? Sure, I love a story. Go for it. Um, so I guess, you know, in my learning process, I was very lucky to meet a number of um, highly passionate um, I guess, teachers and supervisors um, who worked in the eating disorder space. Um, and I think I told you that I had a, a negative experience in my first lecture um, in my master's degree. Um, and I, I considered discontinuing um, after one lecture. Um, luckily, my, my family um, talked me out of that. Uh, they suggested I should give it a bit more of a go than yeah. one lecture. <laughs> um, Just a bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um, but really what happened there is 
I had a real values conflict with the lecturer. So I listened to the lecturer talk about their way of working with a client um, in a particular situation. And I was really shocked, I think, by the way that they had managed it. Very different to my own set of values and how, how I would have engaged around that. Um, and I remember thinking like, I don't want to be doing this. If that's what, if that's what this is about, that's not for me. Um, but in contrast to that, I had the opportunity to work with a number of fantastic um, teachers and, and supervisors who were very passionate about eating disorders work um, and really instilled that passion I think in me and so I've gone on to to work in that space and and try to now kind of instill that passion in others as well to really bring people into a space um, where not many professionals are willing to work mm. um, and and to help people to see that you know the patients that we work with their problems might be complex but they're just people yeah 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 yeah, I know that when, um, you know, in, when eating disorders were treated in the past, you know, they were treated quite harshly and mm. treated in a way that we would now understand as being quite punitive yeah. and traumatic, certainly. Uh, what's the focus in the treatment for eating disorders these days and what's the difference to that old stereotypical treatment? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one is certainly that with adolescents, um, historically there was this view that families were the problem that you should separate a young person from their family and um, like put them in some sort of hospital based service and that through this separation from the family, they would somehow get well. Um, and things have come a long way from there, I suppose, mm -hmm. in terms of recognizing that families are a resource that families um, support young people, that families are not to blame for the development of eating disorders. Um, and there's been a really strong push towards genetic um, genetics um, research as well. So really understanding the biological basis of eating disorders. Um, and I think that that has, that framework is useful in our work with adults as well in thinking about, well, you know, if, if this is a biological illness in, in many ways, a, a genetic based illness, then, you know, we can't be treating people as that we, we can't be saying things like this person is resistant to treatment or this person, like, you know, we really need to see their humanity and how difficult the struggle is for them in managing this illness um, and how much they might want to make change, yeah. um, but might be struggling against their own biology. I know from some of the experiences I've, I've obviously, you know, over the years, mm -hmm. I've had clients with eating disorders and colleagues and you know friends and some who've had experience, lived experience. Um, and I know that, a lot of people talk about having to deal with the frustration of their health professional. Mm. And yes. that that's an, yeah. added, an yeah. added burden. Like not yeah. only are they living with their own struggle, but they're also living with the struggle of a health professional yes. who's, you know, not necessarily specifically trained in working yes. with these disorders. And I but certainly was not specifically trained. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I don't work in that space anymore because I know yeah. it's a highly, highly um, intensive area of work mm. and it takes a lot of very specific skill sets. Mm. Um, do your clients talk about that or is that something that you oh, focus yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, our clients definitely talk about that. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think many of our clients have had some kind of unhelpful experience with some kind of health professional, um, whether it's been a GP um, or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or someone who they just, who didn't, who didn't understand about their experience or they didn't feel um, was the right fit. I mean, I've had people tell me that their GP 
you know, people with anorexia nervosa who are severely underweight tell me that the GP said they weren't like, they couldn't possibly have an eating disorder because they weren't thin enough or, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, some really extreme versions like that. Um, and you know, but some of it is more just about, you know, I guess that, that rigid approach to how we, we approach treatment as well. Um, you know, I guess when you're new to something or you're not as familiar, um, then you rely on that rigid adherence to a manualized treatment. Mm. Um, but given how effective the manualized treatments are and how little we know still about eating disorders and what works, um, you know, we need to utilize what the evidence shows is useful and, and what's likely to be beneficial, but we need to work in more in collaboration with the patient. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that is, I mean, that's often the case with a lot of the work that we do as mental health professionals is collaborative. Yes. And there's no point trying to force change on somebody. Yes. Um, you know, it's, you've got to engender the desire mm. for change and that's a big process in itself, yes. isn't it? Especially with eating disorders, I yes. imagine. Yeah. So tell me a bit more about the award. Congratulations yeah. again. Thank you. What do you want to know about the award? Oh, so what I want to know, I just want to get you in this. Sorry, I'm, I'm You're moving. Squirmy. I do. I'm squirmy. So I'm moving around the room because Amy keeps moving. <laughs> so tell me, um, so the award, there was a nomination process and yes. there was criteria. What were the key criteria for being named Psychologist of the Year? Yeah, because no, you're going to really Can I jump in for memory. a second? I'm going to jump in for a second because I think, I think what's really important for people who aren't psychologists to understand is that we're actually not allowed to compare ourselves against other um, mental health professionals and say yeah. that we are better than so it's actually an acknowledgement of achievement acknowledgement of dedication to the practice of psychology mm. and to the business of psychology mm. um, leadership I guess yeah. um, have I missed any of the key criteria um, I don't think so I mean that that's a pretty good overview in terms of testing testing my memory but yeah it's about um, you know that the contribution to the profession overall that collaboration um, within the health community um, you know commitment to client-centred evidence-based care, um, leadership and integrity, um, quality, safety, ethical practice. Yeah. I think there's another one that I can't remember. Yeah. But the, the criteria were really broad. Yeah. 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 Cool. So, so not just about, I guess, that kind of bit that you do with the client, but that bigger mm -hmm. picture sense of what does it mean to be a health professional engaging with your community um, and representing the profession in a bigger sense as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And it was nice to see, you know, in terms of nominations as well, you know, a number of professional colleagues that we know yes. from around Australia were also nominated. So for the rest of you who were nominated, if you're listening, yeah, congratulations. We're really excited yeah, to see those nominations. And uh, what does it do for your practice now, yeah. what do you, I mean, I know it's very early days, the dust is yeah. probably still settling, but how, how do you think this will benefit your clients and your, your team yeah. members, you know, having, having this award yeah. on your shelf? Yeah, so I think you're right. I think it's still, it's still settling in a little bit that I've won this award, especially because I only actually got the award yesterday. Yeah. Um, even though we've kind of known about it for a week. But um, I think a couple of things. One for me is that it really, you know, being, a young business owner being a young business, um, it really, it's that kind of stamp of approval that the direction that we're trying to go and what we want to achieve and the vision that I have for the business and what we can achieve in our community, somebody else or a number of other people who are respected people in our field, respected people in health in general, think that it's good um, and support that. So it's almost like having someone say, I'm behind you 
Um, and I'm going to publicly acknowledge that I'm behind you and support you in, in the vision that you want to achieve. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, sometimes it can be very isolating being, being the owner of a business and having to make all the decisions, um, you know, with advice from other people, but ultimately that, um, that onus of the decision-making kind of rests with you and the onus of the leadership and the direction that you're going to go rests with you. And, you know, as with many things, lots of challenges arise in that along the way. Um, but that it, there's almost that, I don't know, like that rubber stamp on what you're doing is good work. And I can kind of fall back on that and be like, yes, what we're doing is good work. And it's worth kind of pursuing through those challenges. And I can hear in that too, that, I can see, I don't know if you can see this yet, but I can see over the next year, you know, conversations about the award will also by default shed light on the treatment of eating disorders. Yeah. And um, and I know a colleague of mine, I was telling you a story this morning, a colleague yeah. of mine who uh, works in the eating disorders field who um, was given a really hard time mm. by medical profession, professionals very early on who just didn't believe it was possible to treat mm. eating disorders in a private practice setting. And, of course, she's now proven that yeah. very much to be not the case. And, of course, Amy's also, you know, private practice setting, doing very complex work. Mm. I think that for a number of mental health professionals doing mm. this complicated and complex work in a private setting yeah. opens up the door for more people, I would imagine, to access yes. the service. Yeah, definitely. That's the way I see it. Um, I think that's a really important point because, you know, for many of the things that we see, because we do do some work outside of eating disorders as well in my other areas of interest, like in tick disorders and complex child and family presentations. And, you know, the, part of the reason that we started this service is because um, the, either the wait times for public service are really, really long. Um, and be so, over a year long, yes. can't they? Yeah. Um, or because there isn't any appropriate public service for, for various different types of presentations and um, access, you know, that accessibility. And particularly for me, you know, I opened the business in, in my own community where I live and where I've grown up. Um, it's important for people to be able to access services close to where they are. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. People, you know, you need to make it easy for people yes. to access the services yes. as best you can. Yeah. As best you can. Yeah. So I'm excited to see, you know, I know that there is a, a trial of, um, you know, supported treatment in the private community mm. on the Sunshine Coast in yes. Australia. There's a, there's a trial, a trial of, um, I'm pretty sure it's through the funding. Yeah, yeah. Through the primary health network. There's a trial of funded support for the treatment of eating disorders in the, in the private yeah. sector, which is really, really exciting. And if mm. that trial proves successful, then you know, one would hope that that will get that funding will yeah. get extended to you know other communities yes. around Australia because of course we all do we understand that people do yeah. die you know this is a, a yes. not just a psychological illness we're talking about a very serious physical illness yes. as well, along with it can be yes yeah, yeah definitely mm. and yeah that would be fantastic I mean certainly that is my understanding if they can demonstrate through research data that um, this model is more effective um, then the aim is certainly to lobby the government to to get more funding and, and roll that out more generally yeah um, and we're actually involved in a research project um, at the moment that's looking to do something similar so we're collecting data um, us and a number of other private services um, Australia-wide are collecting data about who accesses services for eating disorders and how long they need to access the service for and what the outcomes are um, to kind of show and, and lobby the government for, yeah. for more um, funding, I suppose. For that's fantastic. Sort of yeah. yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome. So you support, you know, a, a non-diet 
focus. Is that, yes. is that right? Yeah. yeah. And and I know from talking with Amy in restaurants and cafes <laughs> across the course of this year um, that Amy is very very much uh, support a supporter of intuitive eating. Yeah. So even for people who don't have an eating disorder, understanding yes. what's intuitive eating all about. I, I love intuitive <laughs> eating, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's it's really about learning to trust your body. So it's about um, recognizing that, I guess, you know, we live in a culture where um, particular things are endorsed as better. So being a particular body shape or size is endorsed as better. And as a result of that, um, you know, we engage in a number of practices, whether you have an eating disorder or not, Mm -hmm. but we engage in a number of practices that um, are designed to try and change the way we look um, to to be more aligned with that uh, ideal that is um, considered to be better um, yeah. in our community. And so, uh, you know, as a result of that, we follow a lot of rules in our eating rather than listening to our body and listening to kind of the signals that our body is giving us and, and what it tells us about um, what we might eat. So when we might eat, um, how much we might eat, um, what foods our body might need to nourish us at that time. You know, do, are we really hungry? Do we need to, you know, something that's going to sustain us for a long period of time? Um, and just allowing yourself to incorporate foods that you enjoy. Food is supposed to be enjoyable. Yeah. Um, and when you follow a very large range of rules, um, we lose that. Yeah. And it becomes, you know, we've got to do it all every day. So if you're not getting any enjoyment out of it at all, it's it's real chore. It is exactly right. And what would you say? I know I'm just hearing you you talking about about intuitive eating, and I'm hearing the voices of many frustrated parents around the country. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was talking to Amy actually earlier today. I have. Um, a son who is one of the most adventurous young eaters I've ever come across and another son who is just yeah. possibly just to be his own little wee self, uh, one of, not one of the fussiest eaters, he's certainly not fussy, but he has very, very um, a limited range of things yes. that he enjoys to eat is probably yeah. the best way of putting it. What's your, what's your take on that when you're, encouraged, when you're talking yeah. to parents? When it's not, we're not talking about an eating disorder here. We're just talking about yeah. uh, encouraging parents not to be perhaps so anxious. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it, it depends kind of which, which model you want to work from and, and how severe the, the restrained kind of eating process is for a young person. So there's a group of, I guess, young people who would be kind of a bit more like fussy eaters and then there's a group of um young people who are a bit more extreme version of that where they might have feeding disorders so you know not body image concerns but just a very restricted range of intake that could certainly influence their growth um or whether or not they're getting sufficient kind of overall nutrients um and start to influence them socially as well as they get older so they can't go to a party and and eat foods at the party because they, they can't eat anything that's kind of on offer and so that's kind of that distinction you know are you seeing some of those things um, or is it kind of just more more general fussiness? Um, but I mean, in in both cases, I would be looking at things like um, consistent exposure. So having family meals where you you know do family style serving. So we encourage people to put all the different foods on the table um, and allow their child um, and the adults in the family to serve up what they want from yeah. those foods. Yeah. Um, and to select some foods that you know your child will eat, as well as other foods that you know, they may not eat or may not be in their repertoire, but they're getting that exposure to the foods, they're smelling the foods, they're seeing the foods, um, and they're seeing other people eat the foods. Um, And it allows them that opportunity to be curious about foods um, and think about how they might incorporate them into their diet. That's great advice. I really like that approach. Yeah, I really do. 
Um, the other thing I would suggest is that you follow our Facebook page. Um, <laughs> if I can get a plug in there. Of course you can. So we, the particular Facebook page that I'm talking about is um, the Tablet Centre for Eating Behaviour. So um, our OT and our dietitians um, and myself and some of our other psychologists post tips about um, helping kids with fussy eating and feeding yeah, disorders awesome. on there. So if you want some like different activities you can do and things like that. Our OT has been posting a series recently about, you know, how do you learn about different types of flavors and the temp how the temperature affects food and a range of different things like that, which are fun activities to do. So it's the Talbot Center for Eating Behavior. That's right. Facebook page. Yes. Go like it. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with me today, Amy. It is so much fun. Always enjoy talking to you. You are very and welcome. sharing your fabulous ideas. We're about to head off and uh, have, have dinner together, dinner. actually. <laughs> uh, we've been working very, very hard this mm. past few days, uh, both of us on our own business goals. And uh, I think we are ready to down tools and relax. So whatever you're doing, I hope you are also having an opportunity to down tools and relax. And thank you very much for joining us. And we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Tess. Bye.